The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. Welcome to Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert. And on today's show, we're going to be talking about the future of museums. Uh, Those of us who have been in the field for a little bit uh, have just seen so many changes, uh, certainly in the last 10, 20 years, and uh, certainly changes this kind of quick fast-paced change is going to continue to be the norm uh, in the future, not only for uh, uh, museum practice, but for all of our lives. And so as museum professionals, we're always sort of wondering, well, what's around the corner? What trends should we be looking at? What trends are trends du jour that uh, maybe are taking us uh, away from our mark? So I thought it would be a good idea today um, to talk to another uh, individual who has been working very hard in looking at uh, trends in the future of museums. And uh, Elizabeth Merritt is a... uh, is the founding director of the American Alliance of Museums Center for the Future of Museums. Uh, she also has uh, worked in other professional capacities for the American Alliance of Museums. And uh, sh- not only is she the perfect person to be talking about this, but as you all know, this is AAM month uh, in honor of the upcoming annual meeting for the American Alliance of Museums that will be in Seattle, Washington, just in almost less than two weeks, May 18th through the 23rd. So I am thrilled that Beth could take some time out of her busy schedule and uh, talk to us this morning, not only about what what we mean by futurist uh, and being able to look um, uh, taking a little more than looking at tea leaves and identifying the future of uh, future trends and future of museums, but also uh, to give us some insights into what's going to be coming up uh, and it, that that uh, very exciting things uh, 
related to the future of museums uh, at the AAM conference. So make sure you listen to the entire show today. I'm going to give you just a little tiny bit of introduction before I let uh, uh, Elizabeth speak. I know that she is waiting there in the wings. Uh, she is, as I said, the founding director of the American Alliance of Museums Center for the Future of Museums. She is a biologist by training, and she earned a master's in cell and molecular biology at Duke University. This led her to a series of positions at children's museums and natural history museums, and finally the Cincinnati Museum Center, where she was director of collections and research, and where I met her for the very first time. Leaping to the association world, Elizabeth joined AAM in 1999, leading the excellence programs at the Alliance, including accreditation, the museum's assessment program, a peer review, and the information center. And in 2006, the Alliance board approved the creation of a futurist initiative as one of AAM's centennial projects. And Elizabeth went off and learned about, uh, went to the University of Houston's certification course in strategic foresight. And I know she will explain to us what that means. And so without further ado, Elizabeth, thank you so much for being on the program today. Oh, thank you, Carol. It's a pleasure to be able to speak with you today. I know that I've caught you in an incredibly busy time uh, as you get ready for the uh, AAM conference. So I am sure you were working on AAM business to the yeah. moment that you came on this program. So let me just ask you, what were you working on this morning? I was working very hard. I was surfing YouTube looking for videos of drone footage that was being used for conservation efforts. <sighs> this is work, and <laughs> I get to do that and call it work. Oh, so, yeah. okay, okay. Flying, <laughs> flying quadcopter drones. We're going to have one at the annual meeting. We're going to be demoing it in our resource center. And I was looking for examples that we could show uh, on the big screen there of how people were using drones for things like surveying archaeological sites and, and doing habitat mapping and even following herds of endangered species, like following dolphin and whale pods at sea or following elephants and rhinos in Africa to monitor their health and well-being. Oh, my goodness. You know, this makes me feel a little bit better about drones since everything, the only things we hear about on uh, the national news are either drones for military applications or to get our Amazon packages back, uh, to us more quickly. Both of those probably have their place, but it's good to know that they, there are some museum applications as well. Yeah, and, and some surprising home applications. I found one video from a parent who sent a drone out to follow their kid to the bus stop. And I'm not sure if that was to look out for predators and make sure their kid was safe or just to make sure the kid wasn't goofing off and actually getting on the bus. From the parent's point of view, kind of a great security measure. I'm sure the kid was very annoyed. I, I suppose there was you a know, cool factor, too. You know, look, this is my drone. You know, this is just taking baby monitors to a whole <laughs> new level, isn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> So, okay, Beth, could you just uh, ground us a little bit more into AAM's Futurist uh, Initiative, um, uh, how, how it got started? I only gave a little brief um, introduction about that. And uh, what, what's its purpose? Why would AAM be uh, putting so much time and attention into this area? Well, Carol, as you mentioned, the concept for this came up in 2006 when the Board of Trustees encouraged the staff to brainstorm a set of potential initiatives to 
celebrate our second century of existence. And what they asked us was, what can you think of that would help museums thrive in the 21st century? And the staff, having a fair number of smart alecks among us, came back and said, well, that's a little hard to say because we're not sure what the 21st century is going to look like. And the board batted that one right back to us and said, well, maybe that's what you should be figuring out. So one of the initiatives they approved was founding the Center for the Future of Museums with the idea being that in a time marked by a very rapid pace of change, museums are really going to have to adapt more quickly than they did in the last century. Uh, I'm sure that you can appreciate the fact, uh, as someone who has worked with museums in many capacities, that it, it used to be that it wasn't that hard to look cutting edge if you were coming in and helping with museums things like management planning. You could go back and mine the business literature from 10 years ago and bring this stuff to museums, and they go, oh, wow, that's so cool. That's so new. You should tell us about that. So you could really be a decade behind the times, and in the museum world, it would seem cutting edge. That's just not true anymore. Museums really need to be on the forefront of what's happening, whether it's cultural change or political change or technological change. So we're trying to help museums both keep up with the way the world is changing and also see ahead, look around the corner a little bit, so that they're not surprised when the world turns into something very different in 10 or 20 years. Thank you, Beth. I think I, you are absolutely right. Uh, it is um, when I – my very – first museum when I worked at the Newark Museum, uh, before we started a massive renovation, there was still something called, once a week, the director's tea, where all of us curators would get together with the director and have tea. And it was not a, it was not a business meeting. It was not where we would plan for the next exhibition. It was to rest and relax and talk about art and science and have tea. I doubt that there are too many museums today who have the time or the luxury to be having tea with their directors, although it probably is a, is a pretty good idea now that I think about it. But you're absolutely right. Museums have changed so radically and drastically in terms of wanting to be proactive. I hate that word, but it's it, it uh, is a, has a nice uh, ring when we say we don't want to be reactive anymore. Yeah. Uh, and museums tend to be at the not only I, I call it the bleeding edge of lagging uh, in, <laughs> in, in technologies. And I say that with great love and affection because, of course, we've had, uh, I've had several uh, very innovative uh, technologist, uh, museum technologists on the show, Nick Honeycutt being one and, and certainly Max Anderson uh, really embracing technologies. But, you know, there are also these uh, running after new trends can be a little risky and can be a lit very, very expensive if it's not in a direction that is going to pay off for museums in the, in the long run. Uh, so how, uh, how do you identify uh, trends that stick and trends that don't? Oh, or the difference between trends and fads, as we say. Ah, Good. Well, part of, Great. Part of it's part of it's a judgment call. You're you're using you're really taking a look at what seems to have the promise of a deep and meaningful impact versus something that's a, a flash in the pan. And it's also the difference between seeing the the underlying force at work 
versus one little experiment, one variation on the theme that might come or go. So for example, one of the trends in education we're seeing is the rise of micro-credentialing. And this is finding ways of validating smaller pieces of learning, whether they're online courses, whether they're internships, whether it's pieces of real-world work that collectively show a body of experience and practice that credential the person's experience and show that they they really know what they're doing. And it used to be that macro credentials, here is my diploma from my university. I did four years of work, and after four years, I get this one credential, boom, which is the whole package. That's kind of an old model that is quickly becoming economically unsustainable. Uh, It's a questionable use in terms of return on investment, and also it's not as flexible and adaptable to the kind of climate we have now where you have to keep learning and keep changing your training in order to keep up. So people are looking for ways to do micro-credentialing to keep their, their resume up to date. Now, within that, there is something called digital badging, which is a particular form of issuing a micro-credential in the form of this little badge that can go on your digital resume or just be displayed on a website. And there's a lot of effort going into right now figuring out how these digital badges could be issued, how they could be interoperable, and that might work. The digital badge, the collection of digital badges might be the resume of the future, or it might come and go, come and fade, and it will turn in retrospect out to have been a fad. I really am convinced that the underlying trend towards micro-credentials is, is enduring. It's going to have real legs. Whether or not digital badges turn out to be the form of micro-credentialing that catches on, that remains to be seen. I'm as soon as you said uh, digital badging, I kept wondering what my um, good housekeeping seal of approval for museum consulting would look like. And so I sort of wandered in, into an arts phase. Uh, uh, but but I, see, I see what you're saying. And uh, in a way, micro-credentialing was what in certain uh, circles was, was considered uh, – uh, continuing education, certainly in the education field, uh, we yeah. do that kind of thing. I, I would think that this is also um, being supported by the um, uh, the rise of online courses uh, being uh, uh, taught at universities, and the uh, the uh, isn't the acronym MOOCs. Well, some of them are MOOCs. MOOC is Massive Open Online Courses. So what distinguishes a MOOC is that they can actually accommodate thousands or even tens of thousands of students at one time. So that's certainly one kind of virtual online learning. And it's extremely interesting because it's a model that makes education of very high quality, because some of these courses are given by the top professors and the top universities in the country. It makes it very accessible to people around the world. So that that uh, that another way, uh, certainly a significant trend in higher education that is changing the way we think about higher education. You no longer need to go to the building with the ivy covered walls to get your education. It's sort of taking the place out of uh, the the uh, the equation. And certainly the same thing is happening with museums as well. Yes, yes. I, I was wondering. I, I mean, I made a, you know a little little sort of offhanded comment uh, before uh, at, about you know you being someone who reads the tea leaves. Uh, you you really don't read tea leaves. Um, tell me you don't. Uh, you actually did complete a course in training in strategic foresight. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that training? I'm, 
Sure, yeah. There are actually two universities in the U.S. that do training in future studies, and one is the University of Houston, and one is uh, in the University of Hawaii, which I would have loved to have gone to, but I didn't have the airfare. And strategic foresight is actually sort of a renaming, a rebranding of the field, because some people, I think, felt that future studies was sounding a little too woo-woo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's actually, it's very, it's a very, vener- ironically, it's a very venerable and historical profession. It started around the turn of the last century in the early 1900s in the realm of demographic and cultural projections in the U.S. because the U.S. was playing around with the, the immigration laws and wanted to be able to forecast what the effects of different immigration policies and what the census data was telling us about the future population of the U.S. And, of course, population data is extremely amenable to forecasting because you you know who lives here, you can take a census, you know what the birth rate is, you know what the death rate is, you know what you're setting the immigration policies to be. And absent some some unforeseen catastrophic event like a massive epidemic, uh, which happened in the early 1900s with the, the flu, but absent that, you can pretty much say, here's what the population is going to be in, in X years and, and how it's going to be composed. And then you can start saying, well, what does it mean? So right now, for example, we're facing the forecast that by 2050, the U.S. will be a majority-minority country, meaning that no one group, um, not white Caucasian Americans, as, as it is now, is going to be a majority. And that's a profound difference that affects everything from politics and policy to culture to food to the way people prefer to consume culture. Now, what we do in strategic foresight is we learn how to do that in a a rigorous way. It's not, interestingly enough, about predicting the future. So futurists don't predict the future. That's your first irony. What they do is they try and accurately imagine potential futures, So they say, here's all of the things that are within the realm of plausibility that you ought to take into account in your planning. Because the natural human inclination is to unconsciously or consciously assume we know what's going to happen. We know what the future is going to be like. It's it's going to be just like today, except we'll also have jetpacks. And of course, that isn't true. We we don't we have we're so deeply embedded in our own assumptions that unless we have a structure and a a framework like strategic foresight to help us question those assumptions and broaden our thinking, we're likely to make mistakes by thinking we we know the way things are going to happen. So if you go back and look at a great futurist program like the Jetsons, they were imagining things like self-driving cars. Now, they had flying cars. That part's not happening, but they did have them self-driving, and that's happening now with Google cars. They had things like tele- teleconferencing with video screens, which we have. So they got some things absolutely right. But you know what? Jane Jetson was still back at home tidying up, even though she had a robotic maid to help her, and, and cooking dinner and sending the kids off to school. So the cultural assumption there was that women don't work. They stay home and raise families, and that was an assumption they didn't question. Very, very interesting. Thank you very much for that uh, uh, that description, particularly um, uh, a misconception that I I know better, but I, I I know in my own voice. I sometimes say, "Oh, you know, the future. We're thinking about the future. We're going to predict the future with these trends." And 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 that's that's really not not what it is. I what I'd like to do. We're going to take a quick break because I'd like to follow up on some of the things you said, Elizabeth. 
and also, of course, get back into uh, some of the exciting uh, trends that you are seeing uh, and um, and certainly what's going to be happening uh, at AAM. Uh, so we will be back in a moment. But before we break, I want to remind everyone uh, that you can follow Elizabeth and the Future of Museums in a variety of ways. They have the Future of Museums org on the AAM homepage. There's uh, futureofmuseumsblogspot.com. There is uh, Future of Museums at, or at the at Future of Museums on Twitter and Future of Museums on Pinterest. So this is an area where you can continue the conversation. But we will take a short break and we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for You with Carla Howell, Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossert. You're listening to Museum Life. And with me today is Elizabeth Merritt, who is the founding director of AAM Center for the Future of Museums. And so, Beth, what what trends are you tracking right now? Well, right now we're doing follow-through on the six trends that we're profiling this year which are, ooh, let's see if I can name these all off the top of my head. The first one is 
what we're calling for-profit for good. It's the rise of for-profit social entrepreneurship, where you have a lot of young people starting companies that are for-profit companies that are focused on what nonprofits would would traditionally call mission-driven values, solving real social ills and and trying to address real-world problems. Uh, The second thing we're tracking is the rise of various ways of integrating multi-sensory experiences into into formats that were traditionally focused on one sensory experience. So, for example, people are are inventing digital ways of transmitting scent, of transmitting touch, that's called haptics, or even digitally transmitting taste. And those are the higher tech ends of the trend. But we're also seeing a lot of cultural experiences, including symphonies and operas and museums, do a lot of things in much more immersive, multi-sensory ways than they used to. So that's another one. We're looking at the rise of big data analytics, this massive amounts of data that we're generating nowadays with our online footprints and the fact that you've got computer algorithms like IBM Watson that are able to crunch this data and do almost magically predictive things with it. And at the same time, we have a a rising trend of people's concerns about privacy because they they see that their digital footprints leads to the fact that people can know almost anything about them. And it's a little creepy how much information we're getting out there about ourselves. We're looking at the rise of the sharing economy, what's also called collaborative consumption. And some of your listeners may have used a rideshare program like Uber or Lyft or Sidecar or booked a stay through Airbnb. These are ways of people using the Internet to make a match between people who want to use goods or services or resources and people who can provide those bypassing the traditional middlemen like hotel chains or taxicab services. And last of all, we're looking at robots, which is why I was researching drones. So the incredible increase in sophistication in robotics in the past few years, in part because of the massive investment the military has made in developing advanced robotics. So the the trends you're you're following and the data that you're following that that support these trends are really trends cross culturally. Uh, there, there are things that are happening, as you say, you know, certainly, uh, large, large industrial areas. If there's, there's a real, um, commitment to funds and resources like the military with drones, then that's going to, uh, provide information, uh, and, and, uh, techniques and technologies that can, uh, dribble out into the private sector and eventually into our nonprofit sector. So that's the idea. Right. Exactly. I'm not looking inside the field at museums specifically because I think museums have historically done a pretty good job of understanding themselves. I'm explicitly looking outside at the bigger world. Futurists look at categories that are called the steep categories. We try and make sure we're looking at social change, which you might also think of as cultural change, technology, ecology of the world around us, the economy, and politics or policy. And by looking at the way things are changing in all those realms, we're going to notice the forces that really transform the world around us and in turn have implications for museum practice. You know, it, it occurs, occurs to me, uh, you know, 
I'll just take the first one where you're talking about social entrepreneurship. And of course, you know, there, there's a lot in the press right now about that because Bill Gates has, has made some, uh, controversial or we could just say strong remarks about, uh, uh, pointing to museums as perhaps not being socially responsible. And of course, we all, uh, you know, fussed right back at him, uh, about that issue. Um, but it, it, it seems to me that here here's a trend that will uh, affect or, or could affect museums quite substantially. If you have groups of people that are looking in a uh, a for profit uh, business model for doing good and providing you know education or providing you know whatever it is you know a good thing for society, well, that's exactly what we're doing. Right, and so if somebody looks at that and looks at a social, a, a really successful social entrepreneur model and says, wow, those guys are fill-in-the-blank helping solve homelessness or helping with arts education, and they're doing it without asking for a handout. They're not asking me for a contribution. They're not asking for a tax subsidy. They're just saying, we're going to do this and we're going we're to make money doing it at the same time. Wow, why should I turn around and give money to a nonprofit that's saying it will do the same thing? if you've proven you can do it without that kind of subsidy. So it, uh, so that, that's, that's a very, very real concern. And I, I can imagine that we can all create the, the appropriate argument of, about the important, the, this fact that many museums have a significant overhead uh, that a, a for-profit company wouldn't have because they've got to maintain their collection, whether it's a living collection in a zoo or whether it's a, a collection of paintings or archaeological material. I mean, that's that's uh, you know that's a little bit of a difference. But I can see where you're going with that. Is that argument needs to be made now, and we need to sort of get out in front of it. Uh, and that's why your your uh, your trends and predictions are so very important. Well, it could even have more provocative implications. I think museums should be asking themselves, really, what is it that they do that has to have a subsidy versus what it is that, where it is that they're simply not making a strong enough case for why somebody should be paying them for the benefit they produce. So one of the things that entrepreneurs do is they make a really good connection between the good they produce and who's willing to buy it. I think museums have done a really bad job of even letting people know they do things like preserving collections or why that matters or the fact that they do research or why that matters. Maybe if they made a better case about that and about the tangible good that it produces for the world, somebody would be willing to pay them directly for it. Interesting, very interesting. You know, Beth, uh, Elizabeth, the other thing that it occurs to me is your your uh, you were reminding us of of these trends is that uh, it really puts a whole new dimension on uh, leadership skills. You know, on this program, we've talked about leadership skills and what it takes to uh, want to run a, a museum and uh, and what skills are, are, are necessary for that. And it seems to me that one of the skills that no one's ever talked about is being able to take these, tr these trends and take this information and help chart that, that future course and, and look at the implications. I mean, it seems to me that all, uh, what we're, what we really need is to make sure that all museum leaders, whether they're the CEO or the board chair or chair of a department, uh, maybe they all need to take the strategic foresight course and I hope for them they get to go to Hawaii, but, uh, <laughs> 
Uh, well, I, I, I think, mean, it, it, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I just I agree with you. I think that uh, anybody working in a museum has to learn such a, a range of skills that I don't think they should all go out and, and say, oh, now I need a graduate degree in or a certificate in strategic foresight. But I do think that every museum leader should become a little bit of a museum futurist because, yes, they have to integrate that longer time frame into their thinking. Well, and 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 certainly the 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 other challenge is that some of these trends, uh, and maybe you can even uh, maybe you even have an example from a trend that you were following maybe two years ago or even last year that has is now something that we just take for granted. Uh, uh, technologies are moving so very very rapidly. Uh, who would know that we could do everything we ever needed to do from our uh, desktop computer in the palm of our hand five years ago and yeah. and what implications that's really making in terms of museum audiences that expect to get uh, their immediate question answered, their question answered uh, right there in the museum. That's a very interesting point. I, one thing I'd love to take an opportunity to point out is people tend to notice technological change because it's right in front of them, it's shiny and it's fun and they can buy it. And it often is the most obvious thing that's different from what they remember 10 years ago. But the, the thing to remember about technology is it's never really about the technology, which is going to keep changing. It's about what the technology reveals about how people want to use it. So it accelerates or amplifies people's natural desires, but it doesn't create them. So, for example, right now somebody might go into a museum or, or go to the airport and try and catch a flight and have a bad experience and, and tweet about it and expect an immediate and personal response because they know somebody could be watching that Twitter account and could respond to them immediately. It's not that that's a new desire. It's just it used to be you knew that that wasn't going to happen because nobody could magically know you were having a bad experience and wanted it fixed. Now technology is enabling that kind of real-time person-to-person communication from anywhere, and people know that, and they expect museums or any service provider to be taking advantage of it. Ah, thank you for clarifying that. I, I... I do think that uh, many of us, and, and certainly I just uh, demonstrated it, have the assumption that much of the the uh, th- the trends that you're watching or uh, the the changes that are going to be affecting museums are technological ones, but they really, really aren't. I mean, human uh, human beings are human beings. Uh, maybe that's the one trend that doesn't change. Uh, it's how we communicate with each other and uh, how how we uh, I guess anticipate uh, uh, services being provided for us and for us getting services. I think one of the most interesting little areas to be watching is areas where people are consciously deciding that technology in the sense of modern emergent technology, electronics, connectivity to the Internet and so forth, aren't serving their needs. So, for example, in our weekly e-newsletter, Dispatches from the Future of Museums, we just profiled a story that's talking about the role of paper in the future. And it's turning out there's a huge debate about the future of ebooks. Are there still going to be physical print books? Is it all going to be ebooks? How do people use one or the other? And there's really an emergent body of research that shows that people interact differently in a neurological level with a physical object that they're reading and remember things differently if they read it in a physical 
setting uh, in a piece of paper or in a book than they do if it's an electronic document. So that's exploring how we process information, how we interact with our world. And it may turn out that physical objects simply have a different kind of reality for us than digital objects. That's fascinating. So, and so I suppose uh, uh, another, another trend um, or, or support for one of these trends is uh, just the, the breakthroughs that we're having uh, in neuroscience. Yeah. I think that a lot of the research that's being done isn't the really, really edgy tech of like uh, magnetic resonance imaging or, or real-time functional magnetic resonance in- imaging, but it, there's certainly enough that we can watch about the brain's functioning and measure about things like memory and when it's being triggered that that helps explore this. That's, you know, it's so interesting. This morning over coffee, I was reading an article in American Scientist that, that is looking, uh, it's neuro, uh, uh, neuro research, but focused at uh, art and how uh, the brain and how individual brains and collective brains really uh, react to, uh, to works of art. And uh, it, it, was, it was really amazing. Yeah, Gary Viken, uh, who just retired from the Walters Art Museum in, in um, Baltimore, was doing really interesting work on that. And I think he's continued his work uh, since he retired in terms of the intersection between art appreciation and neurobiology and what's our real biological and evolutionary connection to art and how we respond to it. Wow. I'm glad you brought up that thing about you were sitting and reading at breakfast because that is how a futurist does their work. It's, we call it the fancy name of scanning instead of just reading, but we basically just go out and look for tons of information in the news, on blog posts, on Twitter, what people are talking about at conferences, and just try and see little threads emerging and tie them together until we can see patterns. Well, I, 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 for, uh, speaking for myself, I realize that there is only so much scanning and reading I can do before I have to, uh, you know, make a living. So it's, uh, I have found your, the, uh, weekly posts, uh, that you provide, uh, through the Center for the Future of Museums, highly informative. It's very easily digestible information that I can, you know, sort of scan while I'm waiting for something else to happen. And, uh, it, it, is uh, helping me or at least feel like I'm a little more on top of things. It's interesting because uh, as recently as I think 10 years ago, people were saying, wow, you know, the big value of the Internet is all of this information you can get and adding value is pushing information out there. And now people are saying, you know, the real value you can add is filtering it because there's too much information out there. And that's what we're trying to do. I'm trying to go and do the reading for you so that you have at least one place to go for a bunch of filtered information that is likely to be on target. Though I hope everybody's also picking their own couple of favorite sources they're keeping an eye on as well. Well, uh, why don't we take a, a short break, and when we come back, maybe you can share with us a couple of those sources that you particularly like. And then more importantly, stay tuned. We are going to get a preview of all of the exciting futurist opportunities that will be taking place at the American Alliance of Museums annual meeting coming up in Seattle May 18th through 23rd. Remember, you can always, 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 continue the conversation with me about this top 
or any other museum topic, let me know what you think that we should be tracking and talking about at carol.bossard at verizon.net. You can also uh, go to my webpage and listen to this and all of the other uh, wonderful shows that I've had at carolbossardservices.com. So this is Carol Bossard uh, for Museum Life, and we will be back in a moment. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson, in The Sea Around Us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. I'm Carol Bossard, and I'm here today with Elizabeth Merritt, who is the American Alliance of Museums uh, Center for the Future of Museums uh, Executive Director, actually the founding director of this very, very important arm of what AAM uh, does and provides service to all of its members and, and museums uh, nationwide. Uh, so, Elizabeth, at, at the break, we were – I, I – I hope you don't mind. I think that this is sort of an interesting conversation. I mean, I know, um, you know, your background is as a scientist. My background is as as, as a scientist. You and I first met and connected uh, because of our uh, love of collections and sort of our scientific approach to things. I'm wondering how much of that do you feel, you know, that rigor, that scientific uh, approach to things, how much of that has, has either influenced you or supported you in uh, charting uh, the future, uh, the Center for the Future of Museums? I think it's framed my thinking in two ways. First of all, I tend to think of 
the world as a series of working hypotheses. So I try not to think I know what's right. It's like, well, maybe this is true. What information might confirm or, or disprove that, and how can I go looking for it? So I try not to lock in on one, any one thing as being right, even the stuff I read about. It's always, once I put it on the table, let me look for information. What supports this? What might argue in the opposite direction? And I think that helps because one of the big dangers of any kind of thinking or planning is, is confirmation bias. Our human tendency to look for information that, that confirms what we already think we know, which makes it very hard to bump ourselves out of our usual ways of thinking and, and switch over, which is important, especially important if we turn out to be wrong. I think the other way that it has informed my work is I have a basic training in how to go look for information and where to find it. So if I make something up in my head, I wonder if there's any data on this, I have an idea of where to go look for it. Interesting, yes. Uh, I, I, I can appreciate that. It goes back to what we were saying again right before break, that the challenge now is not that there isn't information readily available on the Internet, probably anything you ever want to know, but how do you find that information uh, and, and how much time do you have to go look for that information? Uh, be, and before we were going on break, you, uh, you were starting to talk about some of your favorite sites for uh, gathering information. Yes. One of the principles of scanning in future studies is to go beyond the established nude sources, which sometimes have really good write-ups and analysis. So, for example, I love reading The Atlantic and I love reading Forbes and The New York Times because they do really good summaries of things that have been pretty well established as being important issues. But if you only read about it when it gets into those major publications, it's already somewhat old news. You're not going to catch the breaking beginnings of trends there. The places to look for those things, the emergent hints about what's going to happen, are much more fringy, things like blogs, things like Twitter feeds things like edgier news sources. So, for example, inside the museum field, I like reading some of the very high-quality blogs by provocative thinkers like Ed Rodley, who writes Thinking About Museums. I like reading Seb Chan's Fresh and Newer, uh, Nina Simon's Museum 2.0, and I love listening to podcasts like yours and like uh, the Museo Punks podcast, because that's sometimes where you hear about things or read about things before they've gone mainstream. And there are really great people out there on Twitter. Sometimes people who haven't used Twitter say to me, oh, you know, that's just people tweeting about their breakfast. Why would I want to read that? Well, you don't follow people who tweet about their breakfast. You follow people who are reporting from conferences or tweeting links to really good papers. So, for example, Michael Peter Edson at the Smithsonian, who does fabulous work on things regarding open data, he sends really good tweets from around the world as he talks and goes to conferences. Or the people like Gunter Wabel at the Smithsonian, who are working on 3D printing. So you can look up really good sources who are your mainstream feed and they can be your eyes and ears out in the world. Those are all really good uh, uh, recommendations and thoughts. Uh, I, I know in, in January I uh, forced myself into a month-long sabbatical, you know, being someone who still is working for a living. Uh, I, I couldn't give myself, you know, a full year sabbatical, but I gave myself a month and I I 
looked for every blog I could find uh, that was related to museums and found some really, really fascinating ones, including some of the, the, the ones that you have recommended as well. And so it, it seems to me that what you're saying is it's not only scanning the, you know, the highest uh, level of, uh, of, of writing, uh, you know, things that are, are, are clearly written and, and, and published formally, but just also just what people are talking about. Yes, exactly. And one thing I'll give you as a source of information, periodically I'll write a post on the CFM blog saying, here are some people I follow on Twitter for the following reasons. You might want to follow them. Or here are some blogs I've been reading that you might want to read. So I try and pass along recommendations like that on a regular basis. Oh, good to know. Very good to know. Well, I don't want to take any any more time away from, uh, can you give us some hints uh, or some teasers of what we might expect uh, at AAM this year? Yeah, other than drones in the Expo, Museum Expo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that sound like um, hornets around sure, your sure. head. Okay, well, one other uh, demo that I'm, that I'm plotting that I was actually working on this morning is I'm working with a company called GLO. Uh, to to stage a demo we're calling the Internet of Future Things. And you may be familiar with the phrase the Internet of Things. This is the fact that devices more and more are connected to the Internet and, and have sensing capabilities. So whether it's your cell phone knowing through geolocation where it is or whether it's your little jawbone up wristband tracking your activity in sleep and, and sharing it with your, your data cloud, We've created a world of, of interconnected sensing devices that can interact with us and with each other in, in cool ways. So I've married that with a, a form of forecasting that, that are called artifacts from the future, which is inviting people to imagine objects that don't exist now but might exist in 20 years or so. So I've had a bunch of volunteers construct artifacts of the future. So they've, they've made things they think may exist 20 years from now that exemplify some of the trends that are shaping our world. Well, we're going to outfit those objects with little beacons produced by GLO that transmit location-specific information. So the only way you're going to be able to find out what these artifacts actually are is to have an app on your cell phone that notices when you're near one, and then it will push you the information about it. Wow. So there's go it's going to be a Artifacts of the Future treasure hunt. Yes. Wow. So will be scattered oh. throughout Museum Expo. Wonderful. And, and, and so is, uh, is this an app that anyone can get? Yes. I'll be posting information next Tuesday about where to go to download the app. And you'll be posting that on, on the uh, Center, Center for Museum blog. website. And then we'll, also, yeah, we'll also be tweeting about it and sending out other notifications during the meeting. Wow. So so we all better uh, get uh, make sure that we're following this both on Twitter and uh, uh, looking at your blog so that we can be in the know. That's that's really that's that's going to be a lot of fun. It's the first time I think we've ever done anything like that at AAM. And then another thing we're doing is we're arranging some appointments when people can have times in Museum Expo to sit down and log into telepresence robots at museums around the country, so around the world. So actually, there's going to be a time when you could sit down and log into one of the telepresence robots at the National Museum of Australia and see what it's like to visit a museum uh, via telepresence robot. And we're also going to be dialing into the De Young Museum in San Francisco. Okay, I got to admit, I have no idea what's a telepresence robot. Oh, okay, all right. 
So you actually, if anybody out there is reading the comics, uh, there is a comic strip called Baldo, which is about teenagers, many of whom are Latino teenagers, and one of the characters is a young woman who can't go to school because of, I think it's because she has immune deficiencies. And she, instead of going to school, she sends a little rolling telepresence robot that are, is her eyes and ears. So the robot has a video screen and a microphone, and she can see and hear what it sees and hears, and it transmits her voice and her image so she can virtually attend classes. And that's one of the things telepresence robots are being used for. Well, you can have that in a museum, too. So, for example, last year at the Pittsburgh Zoo and Aquarium, uh, Verizon sent what they call their Vigo robot so that school kids could dial in and control the robot, which rolled around the aquarium, and it could interact with the docents, and it could look at the exhibits, and the kids could ask questions. This past Tuesday, a gentleman named Henry Evans, who is a quadriplegic mute due to an accident, recruited some of his friends who are in a similar situation to write blog posts for us about using telepresence robots for accessibility. So people like Henry and Stuart and um, Mantvis, who are all gentlemen who contributed to that post, are saying, we can't go to museums physically. It's, it's too complicated trying to move us and get us there, but we really like visiting museums. And if you let us dial into robots like this, this lets us travel around the world and, and transcend our physical limitations. Um, so, wow, my goodness. That's all I can say. I'm sort of speechless. So this really, this this is another sort of, uh, I, th I think that this is an amazing opportunity for museums to uh, reach out to uh, audience that, audiences that have been marginalized for for whatever reason not being able to physically uh get to a museum uh it, it sounds like it's sort of the jetsons all over again yes with very practical applications so i think one of the things about people thinking about robots over the decades if not the centuries is they always seemed like a cool idea but it wasn't really quite clear what they were going to be doing and some of the early prototypes of robots did really silly things like pouring coffee for you. Well, you know, humans are probably better at pouring coffee than robots are ever going to be. But when you have somebody who is paralyzed, and this is, again, something that happened either last year or the year before, and you have a robot that can be controlled by her brainwaves that lets her pick up a glass of water and bring the straw to her lips, suddenly that's something that she couldn't do by herself that now she can with robotic assistance. So we're finding the niche that robots fill that really have practical applications. Very, very interesting. Are there any other um, uh, little tidbits that we should be looking out for at AAM? Well, if people want to catch up with me there, Sunday at 3.30, I'm going to be chairing a session on the future of education where I'm joined by uh, a couple of people, Paula Gangapadhe from the Henry Ford and Nathan Ritchie from EDCOM. He's director of the Golden History Museum. We're going to be talking about a report AAM just released on the future of education and how museums may play a much bigger role than they used to. And on Monday at 8.45, I'm going to be doing a session where I give an overview of this year's trends so that uh, those six trends I previewed at the beginning, they were published in Trends Watch 2014, and I'm going to be giving an overview and update on that. And then Monday afternoon at 1.45, I'll be joined by a bunch of wonderful people who are working with big data and data analytics in various ways at their museums. Wonderful. Well, you are going to be extremely busy. Um, 
I know we'll have a very large group. Uh, uh, people come literally from all over the world to go to uh, AAM and having it in Seattle near the Pacific Rim. Uh, I'm anticipating that we will have a number of foreign visitors from uh, from Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, and, and um, uh, other other parts of uh, Western Europe and uh, the Pacific. Uh, but what about people who can't make the meeting? How can they stay involved? Well, there are a number of ways uh, to be involved. First of all, um, keep an eye on the Twitter screen, and the hashtag will be AAM2014. If it's anything like last year, people are going to be very generous about sharing their insights and tweeting links to resources that have been shared by speakers. Another thing is to watch the CFM blog for follow-up, because I have made a list every year uh, of... uh, Guide to the Future at the annual meeting. I'll be publishing it this year, this coming Thursday, and I'm going to be following up with people who attended those sessions or who chaired or gave those sessions and inviting them to write blog posts. So you can read write-ups from some of the things that were shared at the annual meeting on the CFM blog. And also remember that every year we record the sessions and make them available for purchase over the web. So if people have specific sessions or if they want to buy the whole set, it is possible to get those the presentations, both the video and any graphics that were shared, and look at them at your leisure back home. Wow. I'm just, uh, as, as you write all or, or uh, remind us of all of these ways that you can stay involved, uh, no one really has an excuse not to participate in the annual meeting at, at, at some level. And it, it just uh, shows that the, the meeting, you know, bringing people together, good people who have great ideas and sharing those ideas so that really great things happen, uh, will continue to be recorded and uh, communicated to, to all of us in the museum field. And that's another, just simply another way, a very important way that AAM is providing service to, to all of us. So, Elizabeth, thank you so very much for all you do uh, for all of us. It's been a wonderful opportunity to have you uh, uh, here with us today. Uh, you've sparked uh, some wonderful thoughts for me and uh, I hope for all of our listeners. Again, you can always reach me at Carol Bossert Services at, Ver- at Verizon.net or carol.bossert at uh, verizon.net to uh, continue this conversation. And Elizabeth, thank you so very much for being on the show today. Thank you, Carol. Uh, we will be back uh, next week with uh, Ford Bell, the uh, executive director of the uh, American Alliance of Museums, who will give us his insight into this upcoming wonderful meeting. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net.